The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. It's Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a deep dive into two major events that led to the television boom and a question of what that has meant for the artifice and theatricality of live events. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. In last night's fourth game of the World Series, the Houston Astros produced the first combined no-hitter in World Series history, tying up the competition with two wins each for them and the Philadelphia Phillies. It's turned into quite an exciting affair this year, with 12 million people expected to tune in to the final. That's about three times more people than watched the very first World Series game to be broadcast on TV. Although, considering there were only about 60,000 households with TV sets in the country at the time, and that broadcast didn't even go out to the whole country, getting a viewership of almost 4 million was pretty impressive. And that impressive turnout for the 1947 New York Yankees versus Brooklyn Dodgers was, by some accounts, the event that truly led to the television boom in America. Writing in The Conversation, communications professor and author of Center Field Shot, A History of Baseball on Television, James Walker explains that the TV industry, largely concentrated in New York City at the time, anticipated that the World Series in 1947 would end up being between the two New York teams and started making plans accordingly. Baseball games had been broadcast on TV since 1939, but the World Series never had been, and most people didn't own TVs anyways. They were still pretty costly, and if you didn't live near one of the rare TV stations, there wasn't much point to owning one anyways. But TV execs didn't let that stop them from dreaming. Quoting Walker, Although no national television network existed at the time, New York's three television stations, NBC, Dumont, and CBS, did have the means to link stations on the eastern seaboard through a combination of coaxial cable, microwave, and over-the-air broadcast transmissions, expanding the potential audience for the World Series. The series would air on eight stations in four markets, New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, and Schenectady. End quote. After predictable back and forth with sponsors, the broadcast was confirmed just four days before Game 1. And though there are reports that the game was kind of hard to watch due to shadows and the positioning of the cameras for that first game, not to mention TVs being around 7 to 12 inches with low-definition black-and-white images and no close-ups or replays, 
The broadcast was an unprecedented hit. About 450,000 people are believed to have viewed the games in households, and another 3.5 million are estimated to have watched the games in bars, restaurants, movie theaters, and even department stores, TV dealers, and car dealerships. Quoting again, The Hooper rating survey commissioned by Billboard found that an average of 82 customers showed up at each of these public locations to watch at least some of the World Series. Variety reported that bar owners saw a 500% increase in patrons during the series. For the first time, many were seeing the World Series live and for free. The audience liked what they saw. Billboard, quoting the Newark Evening News, reported that TV audiences hung on every turn of the video cameras, and the oohs and ahs at a slide or strikeout were something radio broadcasters would give their teeth to hear. The Washington broadcasts even reached the White House, where President Harry S. Truman, his staff, and the D.C. press corps watched some of the contests. The industry magazine Televisor reported an enthusiastic response from the White House viewers. If TV can do as good a job as that on perhaps the most difficult of all subjects to televise, then it really has arrived, end quote. Walker credits this World Series coverage with giving a significant boost to the TV industry. According to Sporting News, sales for new receivers in New York following the World Series increased to levels not seen since the early days of radio. While the broadcast of that epic 1947 game wowed many at the time, and even in hindsight seems a bit remarkable, there's one man who, had he lived just a few more years to see it, would not have been surprised. Nikola Tesla, who all the way back in 1926 told Collier's Magazine that in the future, quote, we shall be able to witness and hear events, the inauguration of a president, the playing of a World Series game, the havoc of an earthquake or the terror of a battle, just as though we were present, end quote. But what has it meant that we're so easily able to view a World Series game, a presidential inauguration, or the tragedies of natural disaster and of war? More on that after a word from today's sponsors. Across the pond in the United Kingdom, there was a different event just a few years after that 1947 World Series that led to a boost in their television industry the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Her father, King George VI, had been the first British monarch to have his coronation broadcast live over the radio. So, writing in Tedium in September, the Pessimist's Archive says, Many assumed Queen Elizabeth's coronation would likewise make use of the groundbreaking technology of the day, the TV. As viewers of Netflix's fictional dramatization inspired by real events, The Crown, will know, one of the biggest proponents of televising the coronation was Prince Philip, who believed it would be a way to modernize the monarchy and make it more accessible to its subjects. But others in the royal family and some in parliament disagreed. It turned into a huge discussion within the government and in the media. The public was outraged in some cases. Many wanted to be able to watch, but then others said it would detract from the dignity of the events. As the point was being debated, Prime Minister Winston Churchill said, quote, It would be unfitting that the whole ceremony, not only in its secular but also in its religious and spiritual aspects, should be presented as if it were a theatrical performance, end quote. Now, I think this is a supremely interesting quote. 
For one, it absolutely did make it all and all subsequent televised events of the sort more like a theatrical performance. You know, people today frequently critique the theatricality of political debates, the news in general, and even sports events. I mean, there was the huge takeaway from the first televised U.S. presidential debate in which Nixon, with his sweating, sickly demeanor, a result of campaign exhaustion and a recent knee injury, and lack of preparation for that particular film set, came off as much more unappealing to viewers than suave John F. Kennedy, who had visited the set earlier so he would know how to play to the cameras and even changed his suit so he wouldn't blend in with the background. It's often said that people who just listened to the debate on the radio thought that Nixon performed better, but those who watched the debate on TV thought Kennedy did better. There are a lot of misconceptions around that first debate, especially around the fact that Nixon actually was fairly savvy with television media in his campaigning. But nonetheless, the legend of that first debate has stuck, and since then, we have leaned hard into the theatricality of all televised events. Political candidates go through hair and makeup and wardrobe. The set, the lighting, the camera equipment is all meticulously planned, and each tiny detail is discussed in terms of how it will best look, what effect it will give for each candidate, how it will be perceived by viewers. Politics became entertainment. But wasn't it always, at least a little bit? Sure, the artifice and the accessibility may have gotten ramped up with television and then with cable news and then with social media, but was listening to debates and speeches on the radio not some form of entertainment? Did people going out to catch Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas debate in the 1850s not make a day of the outing? In what way was the pomp and circumstance of a lavish, religiously imbued coronation ceremony with a live audience not theatrical even before it was broadcast to the masses? I mean, even in periods of history in which theater was banned, morality plays and other religious sketches of a sort to teach the religion of the land to those who couldn't read were still common. And in what way is even the most Puritan of church services from the 1500s not a form of theater, too? With the reverend preparing and rehearsing the sermon ahead of time and then performing it for an audience. Maybe broadcasting the 1947 World Series didn't make that game much more theatrical, given the low quality of the cameras at the time. But, you know, surely the presence of the cameras, the disruption and logistics required to install them in the stadium, caused at least a bit of a psychological ripple for the players. You know, a bit more pressure, an awareness that millions would be watching, not just those in the stands or those listening on the radio. And now, athletes are exceptionally aware of the cameras. They make sure to look their best, showing off certain hairstyles and accessories, or making political statements that they wouldn't have been able to do on merely an audio-based medium. Football players run to particular cameras for a celebratory close-up after making a touchdown. They're all interviewed relentlessly before, after, sometimes during games to keep us all even more entertained with constant discourse and content. So maybe the broadcasting of these major events on TV didn't so much create theatricality where it didn't exist before, but rather pumped it up, put it into hyperdrive. Just as the TV wasn't as popular before events like the 1947 World Series and Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953 vaulted it into the mainstream, 
Perhaps so too was the artifice of our live events a little bit easier to ignore before TV allowed every event to be immediately shared with millions instead of just a lucky few hundred who were there in the flesh. And here's an interesting takeaway from Tedium. Back in 1996, an anti-TV activist called on King Charles to ban TV cameras from his eventual coronation. The activist, David Burke, was one of many around the globe at the time who saw television as the cause of many social ills, from undermining democracy and community to impairing morality, education, and mental and physical health. Burke thought that Queen Elizabeth II's coronation had marked the widespread adoption of TVs in the United Kingdom, which is fairly accurate. As Tedium notes, it did lead to a boom in TV sales in the country. And that perhaps if Charles were to ban TVs and not broadcast his coronation, it would be the death knell for television, marking the end of the era. Now, a quarter of a century later, as we await that coronation finally happening, could you imagine that? No TV cameras at King Charles's coronation? I mean, actually, it's not the most bizarre idea. After all, those aren't the only cameras with a means to broadcast that we have anymore. What if Charles's coronation were the first to only be live-streamed on some social media platform and forgo network and cable news altogether? Because after all, like his grandfather's coronation was the first to be broadcast on the radio and his mother's was the first to be broadcast on TV, why not Charles's be the first broadcast on Twitch? It probably will be. Because if there's a groundbreaking technology today that many people, not just fringe activists, but I'd wager most of us, fear is undermining democracy and community and impairing morality, education, and mental and physical health, it's not TV, it's social media. Now, I don't actually think for a second that the King's Coronation will only be broadcast online, though plenty of big events have done that, and Charles has always been a bit of a curious disruptor. But it will be broadcast online in addition to TV. More people might even watch it online than on TV. I don't think that will make any kind of difference to adoption of a new platform or technology, like his mother's coronation and the World Series did. And for all the arguments people have tried to make over the years that social media is more authentic and more real than TV and Hollywood, don't think for a second that it isn't theater just like the rest of the world. I mean, Shakespeare had that figured out back in 1599. All the world's a stage. And nowadays, I suppose, all the men and women merely cogs in the algorithm. The cast list for the GameStop Stonks movie just keeps getting longer. Dumb Money, directed by Craig Gillespie and based on a book about the event that was somehow published when the whole event had barely ended yet, had already announced that the film will star Paul Dano, Seth Rogen, Sebastian Stan, America Ferreira, Anthony Ramos, Shailene Woodley, and Pete Davidson. But this week, Deadline announced they have also added Nick Offerman to the lineup. 
Now, a quick reminder about what the real-world event and this movie are about, quoting AV Club. The movie is about the GameStop Stonks saga, where Redditors were briefly the good guys against greedy Wall Street traders who tried to short GameStop stocks and got screwed in the process. Basically, Wall Street dudes had bet that GameStop stock would lose money, so Redditors bought up GameStop stock and made its value go up, which made the Wall Street dudes lose money. Later, a lot of the good guys in the story, including GameStop, which was really just a lucky third party, pulled a proper two-faced Dark Knight heel turn and got deep into NFTs, which sucks, but it was a cool couple of days at least. End quote. And as AV Club points out, even though we know very little about this movie yet, including what characters all those stars will be playing, you can pretty much guess whether they'll be Redditors or Wall Street bros. You know, Paul Dano, Pete Davidson almost certainly Redditors. But hey, maybe they'll surprise us. The movie is currently still in production, so no word yet on a release date, and I'm personally anticipating something of a The Social Network vibe, but that might just be my subconscious thinking that because the book that the movie is based on is literally titled The Anti-Social Network. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.